Our featured BBBgive.org accredited charity seal holders for this edition are Ovarian Cancer Research Alliance, PetSmart Charities, Solar Cookers International. To find out more about these and other BBBgive.org accredited charity seal holders, go to give.org. You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor, your host. Now, this is part two of a two-part episode. I hope you'll go back and listen to episode one, which we released last week. And I know you'll find that just as amazing as what you're about to hear. Darren, welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast. Hello. Thank you. Great to be here. Well, I want to shift a little bit because, again, as I look at your background, I know you consider yourself an activist, which I would say, um, again, looking at who you are as a person, you're a black male, a black gay man, and clearly you've come across situations that would require you to exercise some degree of activism. At the same time, you work to support institutions and build institutions, right? So Mm -hmm. I guess what I want to understand from your perspective is, are we at a good place with activists understanding the role of institutions and institutions understanding the need and and have some respect, I guess, for activists. Yeah. Where are we in your estimation on that continuum? Or is it a continuum? Yeah, it's a tough question. I don't necessarily know. Let me think about this for a second. My my first thought was, I don't know if it's a continuum, right? I I do think that. So what's interesting is I would tell folks that early in my earlier in my career, and I tell folks this all the time as well, within the nonprofit and and social uh, justice and, and social sector, that earlier in my career, activism was about what you're tearing down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. really, it's literally like, like I was the guy you brought into a room and I could blow it all up. I could right. tell you what was wrong with everything. Like this is right. wrong. This is wrong. You know? Right. And, right. and so it became your, your activism, your power came from critiquing, mm-hmm. right? Your co- power came from pulling things apart. Your power thing came from telling folks what was wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. And at some point in my career, I'm not quite sure when it was. I wish I could name that time. My flex, my power came from creating things. Mm -hmm. So it became less like you critique things, you pull things apart by building something in their place. Mm -hmm. Right. And that became a huge flex 
right? It's like, I'm, you know, I, you know, and I joke all the time within the work uh, that, you know, from a narrative building perspective, the easiest way to disrupt a broken narrative is to tell a more beautiful and more compelling one. Right. And so I think at some point for me uh, and for many of my peers within the space, we realized that, you know, critiquing wasn't enough. We had to figure out what we were going to put in its place. Right. And the flex became, what do we build? Like what, what is what we were talking? Yeah. This world is messed up. It's clearly not working clearly. Right. Uh, for those of us that it should be working for, but what do we build to make it work? Right. And so I think there is, that is a flex. All right. That is yeah. a real flex to walk into a room and to see what's wrong, mm-hmm. mention it quickly, but then shift the conversation to what's right. And mm-hmm. what are you going to make right? I mean, that is a power play that many black folks don't get to play. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Queer black folks on top of that. Yeah. Right. And so I think there's something to be said about how you live into that mm-hmm. in a way that's powerful. That's why we're here. Like that's, that, that's yeah. why I'm here. Right. You know, yeah. I, you know your, your generation, uh, I mentioned in my podcast very often that, my family's been in New Orleans now for nine generations. I'm seventh generation. New Orleans name. My family's been in New Orleans for a very long time. And I am the only generation to grow up in integrated schools. Wow. They were de jure segregated before me. My parents actually met desegregating their high school. And they were de facto segregated after me because all the whites had left the city. Right. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in this. They, are, they were doing the most. I mean, I, when I tell you I grew up in Sesame Street land, everybody was trying their best to make desegregation <laughs> work i mean and we were we were generation sesame street like our parents set us down in front of sesame street and mr rogers and we thought all that was so normal that was radical right like someone was really giving us a radical view of the world and what the world could be and Mm -hmm. we normalize that and now our job becomes building institutions that respect that narrative it's a beautiful narrative and it's one that's possible how do we build institutions that normalize that narrative and give people the space to live into that narrative um, and I, that's where activism is important for me. I, you know, I joke in my time in Memphis and I, Memphis was a really interesting work environment for me. I, I you know, I've been working at Bridge Band for many years. We've done some work in Memphis and I remember really my first staffing conversation was a consulting firm, staffing conversation where you want to go. And there were three projects, one in, one in Seattle. And I'd, I'd worked with that client in Seattle enough. I was ready for a break. One in Chicago, love Chicago, great town, but I just spent the summer before in Chicago and one in Memphis. And I realized that I grew up in, I'd grown up in the South, but I'd never worked in the South as an adult. Mm. I remember going into Memphis thinking, okay, this will be interesting. And, and one, the first thing I realized, Art, is that, you know, New Orleans is not the South. New Orleans is, it, it's geographically in the South and there's some Southern stuff going on, but New Orleans is a Caribbean city that happens to be in the South. Right. Memphis was the South. <laughs> it was this was like no meetings on Wednesdays because of Bible study, you know, no, no alcohol on the weekends on Sundays because because, well, I never understood that one because last I checked, Jesus first miracle was turning water to wine. But, you know, but, you know, but I have a New Orleans take on religion. So, I, you know, I respect all of that. Right. And for me, I realized my very presence was radical. Mm-hmm. Here I was this queer black guy from California. And, you know, I, I was taking up space. I, they were lucky to have me, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, you know, but I, had, I was from New Orleans, so I had a Southern connection, right? Like, and I just walked into rooms that apparently people hadn't walked in before. I didn't know any differently, right? And to, you know, the earlier conversation we had before, I didn't realize how much I was normalizing narratives for people who were looking at me. Like people, mm-hmm. people in, you know, young Black kids, young queer kids were looking. They were like, this guy is... It's like, I'm so impressed that you're out. 
you know, yeah. out in Memphis. Like, I have a whole husband. What else am I going to be? Like, I, I can't. What's, what's, what do you mean? You're impressed that I'm out. What is this? So I can't. Yeah. Um, but the way you were able to normalize things, the way you were able to talk about things, the way you were able to question white supremacy and call it out, because white supremacy yeah. is actually you know, a strong cover for white mediocrity, right? Uh, and here you are, this example of black excellence. Right. Not even the most excellent, but you, you're getting the excellence that they're getting. They've never seen before, yeah. never appreciated before. And so for me, I think there is something to be said about activists being able to not only show us what's wrong in the current world, but activists being given the space to not always be on the defensive mm. and being able to tell us what a good world could look like. It's why I mm. love so much the idea of artists as activists. Because I think that historically within the black community, you know, 50 years ago, all of our leaders were ministers. Yeah. We're all reverend something or another. And if anyone who was working on understanding the black community, you knew there were only about seven professions we were allowed to have. Yes. And, and the ministers were our intellectuals. Mm-hmm. They were the free thinkers. They were brilliant. Yeah. The black church has changed another conversation for another day. Yeah. But, for those, but for those of us who grew up and, you know, I grew up in a, you know, liberation theology Mm-hmm. Black setting. I mean, whew, there was Sunday was I learned a lot on Sunday. And I and I say that this is a queer black kid sitting in pew three. I never felt uncomfortable in church. This was my spot. Right. Like these were we we're about to create something. We we're about to create a little bit of heaven here on Earth. Right. Mm-hmm. In ways they'd never seen before yeah. from an equity perspective. And I think you see now, actually, that lots of our leaders, most of our leaders are actually artists. They come from the arts community. And the question is, why? Those are the people just like the ministers in the past. They're the people who are free to reimagine the world, right? Yeah. In the past, we were reimagining it with heaven as our guide. <laughs> and now we're reimagining it with a future world that we can actually create here on earth yeah. as our guide. There are people that aren't, there aren't, they aren't forced to conform to the way the world is organized. They're able to see something different. And that's the flex that comes when an activist is allowed to dream and to build as opposed yeah. to just critique and tear down. Yeah. Well, I want to give my listeners, our listeners, some reference today to what you just said about the black minister mm-hmm. back then. <laughs> I have I had the honor and privilege of working for Leon Sullivan. Mm. Leon Sullivan created the largest, most successful community based self-help job training program in America and potentially in the world at the time through the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. The organization still exists today and is doing great work, training millions of people for jobs. And most of this work emanated from his pulpit. He he always said, you know, we got to talk about milk and honey in heaven, mm. but mm. we better be talking about ham and eggs on earth. <laughs> <You know? laughs> there is, no, there is some, you know, honestly, it's, I wish I had more time or more space to talk about this. I enjoyed my uh, religious mm-hmm. upbringing. Mm-hmm. And I know that's a very unique statement, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I yep. also recognize that a lot of people experience trauma mm-hmm. in church. And so yep. I, I want to acknowledge yep. that. And I recognize yep. that my experience, unfortunately, was a rare one. Uh, there's a wonderful quote, Andre Leon Talley, uh, the, Vogue, the Vogue editor who died recently, just a, a, a powerful presence. He worked at Vogue. He worked in fashion houses across Europe. And at some point he was asked, where did he learn all that he knows about fashion? He's like, well, I've learned, I've worked at all these places under Warhol, under all these people, but everything I need to know about fashion, about living well, about demonstrating and signaling both wealth and comfort and happiness 
comes from my days watching my grandmother get ready for church in mm. rural North Carolina. Right. And I think of all my fancy studies and I've had some fancy ones, right. That I learned the most I ever learned about black America, about being black, about justice, sitting in pew four of, of the church that we grew up in. And I'm technically a joke all the time. I'm, I'm Unitarian now. I'm Unitarian at some point in college, mm. but uh, my dad is Catholic. Uh, my mom is Baptist, which in New Orleans means the boys are baptized Catholic and the girls are christened Baptist. Mm-hmm. And so you go to mass four times a year with your dad, as all good Catholics do, but then you go to church every Sunday with your mom, right? You go to, uh, and so you're raised Baptist, basically. The Pope mm-hmm. would argue otherwise, but you know, you're raised Baptist. And so I remember the sermons. They were just, into, I mean, literally just intellectual exercises, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. masterful intellectual exercises. I've never seen that level of intellectualism as exists on a pulpit, right? Being able to, to craft together these really complicated narratives that sp- spoke to truth, but also connected you to a larger power and a larger answer. Um, and being able to disrupt your, the regular narratives every Sunday, right? Like yeah. giving you a sense of hope. And, and, and so many of them, I was actually home. At some point in grad school, I was home and my minister is now the pastor of this church. Dr. Rapp is now gone. Um, he, of course, my grandmother had him over for dinner because uh, I was in town from grad school in Paris. Right. And and he asked me which sermon, which sermon I remember most. And I, funny enough, there are a few that I remember, but there's one that I remember very keenly. Most because I was a young kid and he was, you know, I was, I think it was still at the age where I was sleeping on my grandmother's nap during the sermon, right? Uh, where your mm. grandmother would put, take out her handkerchief during the sermon, put it on her lap and you put your head down. And then, and he woke me up because he was saying, there's a song on the radio these days, what's love got to do with it? Like mm. he, was, he was making fun of Tina Turner. I love Tina Turner. I love that song. Right. And he was like, what kind of question is that? Love's got everything to do with it. What mm. are we without love? Right. Right. And, and something like that, like that, that sits with you. Yes, right? it does. And so I think about that. What's love got to like love? This is all a work of love. Yeah. Right. And all that's done in love is done well. Right. Yeah. And I remember, you know, the, the, his, this, before I gave, went off to college, the big sermon he gave to all of us in, in the audience was this one about remember the Bible is, and the golden rule is to love thy neighbor as thyself. But yeah. implied in that is that you have to love yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The importance of loving yourself and the problem in our society that so many of us hated our neighbor as we hate ourselves. Yeah. That's um, very true. Anyway, so sorry that that's another conversation for another no, day. No, this is very good. No, no. Day, but I think that there's something to be said about, you know, those my husband's Chinese American. He jokes about going to Chinese school and I joke with him that for me as a black American, church was black school. You you learn how to be black every Sunday and the best of black America. Right. Well, we have a a little bit different orientation. I grew up in an Episcopalian mm-hmm. church mm-hmm. where I did, I sang every Sunday as a, as a boy. So we're going to get into the music. Yeah. Thing in a oh minute. yeah. But I wanted just to end this segment with Leon Sullivan organizing in the 1950s in Philadelphia, 400 black ministers to boycott any business that would not hire at least one black person. And there were a number of them in Philadelphia at the time that would not hire one. And he was able to organize 400 black ministers. And every Sunday they go to their pulpit and saying, this is who we're picketing this week. Can you imagine something like that happening today? I just can't imagine it. I can't imagine the level of, advocacy that existed within black churches, right? It was understood that was, you know, and I had a conversation with 
someone on my podcast talking about how like within black America, this idea of advocacy was normalized. Like we were all political. The idea of not, not church, not being political, like your very existence as a black American is political. Right. Right. And like, and I remember totally, my grandfather would tell stories about how during the bus, bus boycotts, they organized, they had a, a fleet of Cadillacs. Those are middle-class black folks, right? Mm-hmm. That was, you know, picking up people at different stops, right? And they all had shifts right. in New Orleans and Baton mm-hmm. Rouge. They was driving cars all up to Baton Rouge. And we had our missionary offering. We had two offerings every Sunday, the second being the church offering, the first being the missionary offering. And it was missionary work. I mean, it was supporting nonprofits, supporting charities. Mm-hmm. Some of it was going to Liberia, throwback from mm-hmm. way back when, right? And so this idea of philanthropy and advocacy being just something that we did, right? And so yeah. I never really grew up with this idea of philanthropy being pale, male, and stale, Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I look up at some point, it's like, oh, this is what, you, oh, this is what you guys mean by philanthropy? Like, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I come from a very philanthropic family and community, and this is what it looks like for us. Right. Uh, yeah. I'm happy. You guys have, you're throwing a lot more money at it. That's wonderful. But let's shift your thinking from a strategy perspective of what impact looks like uh, to yeah. make that money stick and make it work. Well, that's a challenge that we have right now. I think the, the organized philanthropy world, which I'm going to, include nonprofit organizations is struggling to reach Mm. everyday people and get them to donate. We're seeing a dramatic decline in the number of people donating to charities, even though the total amount of money going to charities is larger than it's ever been. You know, wealthier people are giving more, which is great, but we're seeing people not give at all who are working every day and and sort of make up the vast majority of our population. I think there's some challenges with that. And one of those challenges might be that the mainstream philanthropic charitable institutions haven't quite figured out how to reach into our philanthropic instincts, the instincts of people who are in our emerging culture, I'll say the people who are coming to this nation for the first time, people who've been here a long time and have been ignored. And and so organizations have to spend time and resources and have to begin bringing some of these folk into their operations to really understand that. And I worry that we're not seeing enough of that. Yeah. You know, I worry that we're not seeing enough of that. So we're going to have to figure some things out there if, if these groups are going to succeed. In, in reaching this or else we're going to have a very different, a very different support base for mainstream nonprofit organizations. Agreed. And I think that we're going to have a support base that's very disconnected from mm-hmm. the work and, and yeah. um, what impact looks like. I, I think that that, you know, that question is a lot more complicated. Yep. I mean, as you know, mm-hmm. um, I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, uh, as I said before, historically communities of color have always been, they've always been, we've always been, uh, quite charitable mm-hmm. and philanthropic. I think a lot of our institutions that were philanthropic engines mm-hmm. don't live into the same, the world the same way that you know, the church right. is not that's like right. the church used to, the church has been capitalized. It's a moneymaker. Now it's not a philanthropic institution where that it used to. And that's where a lot of our funding came through. I think there is in many ways, a way of thinking about the, the big questions. How do we give a more diverse and broader set of folks, a sense of belonging in the philanthropic mm-hmm. conversation? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, we see it now as it plays out with, you know, various issues. I think the most salient is the the 
environmental justice, climate justice conversation, yeah. where we all recognize something needs to happen, <laughs> yeah. right? And that funds are needed, but people people see that as a space that rich white people give money to. That's right. Right? Like what? How is my how is my whatever thirty thousand cap on give you know whatever from a privileged world thirty thousand yeah. on cap in giving gonna compete with a a Mister mm-hmm. I gave two billion. Right. Right. Um, and so I think there is something to be said about how do you not only give people a sense of belonging, because when you come with that, because the belonging, of course, encourages you to fund. But also when you fund, you have skin in the game. Yep. From an impact perspective. So the billionaire is giving away a billion dollars. But who he, what is he what does he want from it? Like, what is he hoping to get from it? Whereas you give away your little five thousand. Well, five, five, mm-hmm. a little five hundred because five hundred yeah, yeah. amount or five dollars. Fifty exactly amount. Right. Right. You can have yeah. some expectations like I want right. to get something out of this. And That's ultimately, right. those conversations are those opportunities are seized by uh, speaking to the needs of the most proximate communities. So mm-hmm. the answer that you're funding with $5 is a more important answer to be um, solved for than the one that they're funding with a, mil- a billion dollars, right? Yeah. And so you're bringing not only yeah. your money, but your voice and your perspective, and you're shifting the conversation in a way that's more community-focused and, high- and more high-impact when all is said and done. Yeah, no, absolutely. Let's talk about music. Okay. Because obviously... Uh, that is something near and dear to you. You've spent some time in that world. What's your connection to music? Why is this so important to you? So I have an appreciation for the role of music and art within life in itself, right? And that, that's that's a byproduct, a very beautiful byproduct of growing up in New Orleans. So in New Orleans, you understand the importance of music, the importance of culture, uh, you understand your community as being one that's very blessed and very uh, rich from a cultural perspective, and that being something that you have to offer the world. I also, interestingly enough, I, I joke, going back to that hippy-dippy background that I had growing up in integrated New Orleans, I also grew up in New Orleans where I, I grew up absent a lot of the problematic narratives around art that I think are important to try to navigate around. So I never grew up with this bifurcation of high art and low art. Art was art. And last I checked, poor and working class communities actually produce the best art, right? Because art is at its, at its core relevant. Mm-hmm. If art is relevant, that's what makes it good. And so I grew up in a city that gave you Big Frida and Went Marcellus all in the same ticket, right? There was no high art, low mm-hmm. art. Everyone produced art. Art's important from a communication perspective, from a, a celebration perspective. I also recognize as well, and this came up in a conference I was in last week, this idea of joy being the yin to grief's yang, right? And so really this idea of being able to balance joy and grief, which is something we have to balance all the time within Black America. And so very often the more grieving we do, the more joy we have to create. And music and art became a way of doing that. Um, and so for me, this, this, uh, the importance of art, the importance of music from a celebration perspective, from a life perspective, from an outcomes perspective was very obvious. And when I came to Memphis, all good strategies within any city must rely on the assets that a place has. And their arts culture was undeniably beautiful and powerful and rich. And so how do you leverage that arts culture as a way of driving outcomes? How do you leverage those artists as activists, as builders? How do you leverage all those unique assets as a way of driving impact within the city itself? And so that's always been my connection to art. 
you know, I don't have, I mean, I sang in our choir as well growing up. I was a deacon too. I was more of a deacon, a junior deacon. I was deacon. listening to your voice as a speaker. And yeah. Maybe made me think you might be a singer too. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, so, people forget that singing is necessarily not know so much about voices, it's about what you hear, right? Exactly. So, <laughs> and so, and I tell actually my, so the way I, I my, my, podcast is constructed. I have conversations with great folks and I end each of the conversations with my own personal epilogue where I kind of give a personal story that relates to the story that the conversation that we had. And I think one of my first epilogues was talking about my grandmother who was, you know, a classically trained opera singer at Bennett. She was a Bennett Bell. It's my dad's family, wealthy family. And she came back to know she didn't work. She was the president of the Mary C. Lewis Auxiliary at church, right? That was her job. And, but she was, just had a beautiful voice, but she was an alto. And so she knew how to harmonize, like naturally, Right, like she could hear the melody and just sing out harmony without, and that's a skill, right? And I joke in the epilogue about how sometimes the the sopranos would falter, and the melody would be lost, and my grandmother would chime in with the melody to remind folks this is what you should be singing, and please start singing it again so I can get back to the uh, <laughs> the harmony, right? <laughs> but it's you know there's no but there's no harmony without a melody. Like you have that's to have right. a line that you're singing from, right? That's right. And so I think that there's you know, the, the power of music to both normalize working together, normalize the beauty that can come with different voices singing around the same, you know, around the same set of music. Yeah. Um, there's also something really powerful from a music education perspective for young people. And this is just you know, youth development in general. Learning in life is not linear. It comes in pits and stops. And very often, you, you know, you feel like you're going backwards when you're actually going forward. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how, you know, and, but we're told that learning is linear. Learning music in the arts actually gives you a sense of uh, linear movement within a training perspective. If you practice, you get better and you can mm-hmm. see the betterment, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that music gives, in, in taking music classes, uh, it allows young people to actually visualize success. And recognize that all that work is building towards something in a way that they can't do all the time in school. Uh, and the training is important as well. So I grew up in New Orleans. You know, my mom was, you know, she played the piano, not by profession. My parents, my mom was a, a child psychologist growing up and she wrote for our local paper, family, family writer for the local paper. Uh, but she, if necessary, if the organist didn't show up on Sunday, my mom could jump up and, you know, play the piano. My dad was an architect by training, but he was also jazz percussionist, right? And so you grew up in these homes where music is very normal. We all took instruments. Uh, You know, I took piano for a bit, but mostly Mm -hmm. sang. Mm -hmm. My brother played the saxophone. My sister played the clarinet. And my mother jokes all the time when my sister came home from school once and the the music instructor said she will never be a really good clarinet player. She will be be really good at whatever she does in life. (laughs) But not that. (laughs) But not that, right? And so I think, yeah, and that's okay. And that's okay. But I think there is something very beautiful about the role of music, particularly as Black Americans, and being kind of the driving force in our connection generationally to our story. Uh, and so that's yeah. always been something that was very natural for me to celebrate, because it was just very normalized to me, like the role of art. You know, art wasn't just art wasn't just something rich folks did on Friday night. Yeah. Right? It was it had it, it had more important value as a community. Let me end this interview by asking you this final. Already, question. man, I was enjoying this. <laughs> Well, we'll have to come back and do some more. Maybe I'll come on your show. And we can I would love that. I'd love that, Art. Well, the, the question is this. You know, we've lived through a not-so-linear progression, I guess, of human civil rights in this country. We're going through 
potentially uh, a period of change now. But, you know, we can always expect that there will be pendulum shifts in our in our country and in the progress. Right. I guess the question I have for you is. What is your hope for this period of change that we're going through? That's a wonderful question and a great way to close out this show. Thank you for this opportunity for me to share my hopes. I, I do want to, you know, caveat before I share my hopes that I want, there are two things. One, I do believe, I, I acknowledge in all of the conversations that I have now from a work perspective, I'm presenting at clients that we've gone through a fairly, we've gone through a very disruptive patch within the country, right? We had four years of a presidency that was at its best, uh, you know, disruptive. It's a, the most charitable language I could talk <laughs> used for that. Uh, followed by COVID. We had a whole civil rights movement in that period. And we're definitely in a huge transition as a country. And I think a huge transition towards a beautiful, more wonderful place. And that brings me hope. There are two things that I try to remind myself of. I was at an event some moons ago with Urvashi Vade, who was a big advocate in the yeah, space, and a, a friend and a mentor of mine, yeah. uh, and so many of us yeah. in the space itself. And at the Dones of Color Network event last year, she couldn't attend. She was, we didn't know, but she was, you know, fighting cancer. We knew she was fighting cancer, but we didn't know it was as serious as she as it was. Yeah. And she gave the closing session speech, and she looked out on this room of these black and brown folks who'd been thinking about the fate of the world, moneyed black and brown folks. So this is an additional <laughs> weight, right? Thinking about the fate of the world and how philanthropy can help it. And we looked a little, you know, we look a little stressed out, right? And she came to the room. She's like, I know you feel overwhelmed. I know you feel dispirited. But I just want you to know that the world that we see now is what winning looks like. Winning looks like chaos mm. when you are creating new systems and uprooting broken ones. Keep pushing. And I want you to look around the room. This is what a winning team looks like, right? Mm. Stay in community with each other. And so when I think about hope, and this is why I love my podcast, and I'm sure probably why you love yours as well, mm -hmm. I get to talk with those folks that I'm, this world is a mess, but we got something for them. We got yeah. some, we got some, we got some quality folks. Are, they've done all the studies. They, we got some quality folks working on these issues. Mm -hmm. And I think that we've created just a solid group of folks that understand the issues, that understand the complexity of it all. And are ready to give their all to push the the, the work along, yeah. and that brings me such great hope. I, I I just feel like we are our parents and grandparents worked so hard to give us these realities as mental roadmaps for success, and hope for me and success for me is just living into that, just living our lives, just as regular normal professional folks, putting our kids through school, uh, showing up for elections, speaking truth to power making sure that these radical views that we have are normalized, right? And having the space to do that, it brings me such hope. And, and, I, I, and I'll, I'll close by sharing at some point during COVID, the darkest point, when we were all having dark thoughts and, and, and I was, we were very lucky, obviously, but COVID was a lot. I don't look back and realize how much it was a, a mental uh, game for all of us. And, and I, as I said across from my husband, you know, who I love to death, he's absolutely wonderful. It's like, I never meant to spend this much time across from you at the dinner table. It was a lot. Right. And I remember calling my mom. I was like, it just makes me wonder, like when we, as enslaved people, what gave us the motivation to get up in the morning and go off to work 
in the fields, knowing that our situation probably would never change. Yeah. And my mother being a forever voice of reason reminded me that slaves probably didn't wake up in the morning and have those deep thoughts. It just gets <laughs> in the life was right. tough. But she was like, she'd imagine that it was two things. One, you were living for each other. You were living for each other. We were living for each yeah. other, right? Yeah. And we were living knowing that there would be future generations that would be able to take advantage of things that we could not even fathom. Yeah. And so I wonder what things we can't even fathom the beautiful worlds that folks will come after us will will be able to to celebrate and and live into. But what what could we be constructing from an anchor perspective as anchors for those beautiful worlds and beautiful homes? And that gives me hope. It gives me a sense of purpose in the struggle and this grand sense of time, the fullness of time. It gives me a sense of something I should be working towards and something that I can look forward to uh, me and generations to come. Things I may never see. No. Oh. Well, Darren, wonderful words to end the interview today. You've been listening to all of all of you who may not know. You've been listening to Darren Isom, who is a partner of Bridgespan's office in San Francisco. And if you listen to any segment of this interview, you'll see not only that he is a brilliant man, but he is also a well-traveled, a well researched, <laughs> a well-studied, and, and someone who has rich experience in understanding our nation and in particular the nonprofit sector. And so you, you can stand with me in knowing that this was a treat having Darren here with me today. And I hope you will share this podcast with friends, neighbors, anyone who you know, we'll need to hear this. And I want to just say to you, Darren, thank you so much for giving us your time and your wisdom. I want to thank you, Art. I don't have the opportunity to have these conversations very often. And this is such a safe space and such a treat. Uh, I think the world of you and all that you do as well. And so being able to be in community with you and conversation with you has been, this, this gives me energy. Uh, so thank you so much. It's been very healing. Well, thank you. Well, let me just thank everyone for listening. And if this is the first time that you've heard about this show, I hope you'll subscribe and listen to the more than 130 episodes that we've done. And if you want to contribute something to the podcast, you can do so by making a gift to the BBB Wise Giving Alliance at GIVE.org. And we'll see you back here next week with another show. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.